Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, before we start the show today, I want to tell you about something brand new we're launching with our friends at Apple Podcasts called The Ongoing History of New Music Unlimited. For $3.49 a month, $3.49, which is less than the price of your morning coffee, you can now get access to the full archive of our shows ad-free. Plus, you'll get brand new episodes two days early and special bonus episodes. It's Ongoing History Unlimited, and it's available right now only on Apple Podcasts. Once upon a time, before social media and the internet, all musicians were mysterious. Outside of seeing them live, our only connections with them were through their music, the liner notes and album artwork, and stories in music magazines. Yes, there were the occasional TV appearances, but those were quite rare. In fact, it wasn't really until music videos started to be a thing in the early 1980s that fans began to grasp what their idols looked like in a major way. And consider this, it wasn't until MTV and Much Music started interviewing musicians that we began to discover what their speaking voices sounded like. Today, though, there are no more secrets. Artists are in constant touch with their fan base through social media. Fans are constantly trading news online. Camera phones are everywhere. We live in a world of oversharing and TMI. Hell, even KISS, a band that spent its first decade hiding behind makeup as a way of creating myth and legend, and essentially invented the concept of the mysterious, unknowable rock star, gave up on that idea in the 1980s. However, I'm happy to report that there are still some mysteries. Artists who have managed to maintain a degree of anonymity. Some have successfully obfuscated their identities through disguise and subterfuge. Others have disappeared into a hermit-like existence where they remain beyond the reach of the general public while still releasing material and maintaining a fan base. Who are these artists, and how did they manage to stay out of the limelight? These are alt-rock's most mysterious musicians. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this episode is all about mysteries, specifically musicians who have managed to keep themselves either hidden or so off the radar that they're able to emerge into the public light only if they really want to. Yet somehow they've maintained music careers and enjoy varying degrees of success. They are alt-rock's most mysterious musicians. Let's tackle things in chronological order. First up is The Residence. This is an art collective 
that began in Shreveport, Louisiana in 1969, they were so determined not to have a conventional public image that they didn't even have a name for the first two years of their existence. In 1971, they became Residents on Inc. And finally, in 1973, they became known as The Residents and continued doing whatever it is that they do even today. When they do appear in public, they're in costume with giant eyeball helmets covering their heads, and they never speak. At one point in the 1970s, there was speculation that one version of the residents was actually John, Paul, Ringo, and George in disguise. It's a good try, but not true. Les Claypool of Primus has been accused of being a member. Not true, we think. Same thing with members of Devo. Again, not true. Maybe. This hasn't stopped people from trying to identify who exactly is in the residence. This research inevitably leads back to their management team, which is called the Cryptic Corporation, which was established in 1976. Four men have been connected to the Cryptic Corporation, but all of them have denied being members of the band. There have been many, many attempts to nail down the band's membership, with one researcher even resorting to spectrographic comparisons of the band's spokespeople with the voices on their records. Bottom line, though, is that we have no concrete idea who these people are, although there are some really solid theories. Yet the residents have released over 60 albums, tons of videos, and a bunch of short films, along with 10 DVDs, three CD-ROMs, and have scored a number of movies. They even embarked on seven world tours. And despite all that, we know nothing about them. Okay, not quite. The only person ever identified as a resident was a guy named Hardy Fox. He made himself known in 2017 as a co-founder and main composer with the group. That revelation came after he left the band in 2016 after 44 years. But then he took all those secrets to the grave with him when he died of brain cancer, glioblastoma, in 2018. I love this. And frankly, I don't want the mystery of the residents to be solved. It would be like, Learning Santa Claus isn't real. I couldn't take that. Let's hear something. This is from a 1978 record called Duck, Stab, Buster, and Glenn. Doesn't have to make sense. This is entitled Constantinople. The very weird residents in Constantinople. Who are they? No idea. Seriously. Next up is someone who is paradoxically very well known, yet we don't know much about her, and that's Kate Bush. Tremendously famous woman who has sold millions of records worldwide. She's been with us since 1978, but she is still very much a mystery. It didn't start that way. She was discovered as a young teenager by Pink Floyd guitarist David Gilmore, who was a family friend. She was signed to a record label, who then let her mature and develop for a few years, while she played with her family in an old farmhouse. Part of that time was spent playing pubs when she was 18 with a group called the K.T. Bush Band. Her debut album, The Kick Inside, came out in February 1978 and was an instant success. It became the first album in the UK to feature a female artist as the writer of every track on a million-selling record. A second album followed, and it was supported by a six-week tour. And then that was it. No more tours. Too exhausting, said Kate. Or maybe it was a fear of flying. Or maybe she was traumatized when one of her roadies was killed in an accident during one of those early concerts. But whatever the case, finding Kate Bush in the wild 
through the 1980s was extremely rare. There was a charity event in 1982, and another in 1986, and another in 1987. Then, in 1993, she made a few appearances in support of her album, The Red Shoes, which came with a short film that she introduced at screenings. And that's when I met her. And boy, it was strange. She agreed to do a live radio show after the screening of The Red Shoes at around 11 o'clock one night. We were ordered to put paper over the studio window so no one could see in. We were also instructed not to approach her, not to talk to her. It was like she was some kind of radioactive porcelain doll. I really caught hell for asking for an autograph, which she graciously gave me, by the way, but I was shuttled away after that. There was another charity event in 2002 before another long, long absence. It wasn't until she agreed to perform a 22-night residency at the London Hammersmith Apollo starting in late August 2014, 35 years after that first tour, that she returned to the stage. I was there for the last of those shows, and as I sit here, that's been the entirety of her live career. Most of the time, Kate spent at her home in southeast London, completely out of public view, and save for a very rare interview, and the one or two times she showed up to accept some kind of Lifetime Achievement Award, that's been it. But the reasons for her absence from the spotlight have never been adequately explained. She made videos, but under very controlled circumstances. We know a few things about Kate's personal life. Her family was well off, with dad being a doctor and mom a nurse. She was raised Catholic, has two older brothers. Her first long-term relationship was with Del Palmer, a bass player and recording engineer. That ended in the early 1990s. She's now married to guitarist Danny McIntosh, and they have a son named Bertie. She moved from London to the countryside, first to Berkshire and then to a remote area on the coast near Devon. She insisted on taking her time with her music, always in private, and her family and personal life came first beyond everything else. Over the decades, she's been portrayed as a reclusive pop star, someone who refuses to play any of the music industry games. Albums come around only occasionally. Kate Bush sightings were like spotting the Loch Ness Monster. Meanwhile, her fan base had both an insatiable thirst for her work, as well as being very protective of their quirky oddball goddess. Few celebrities have had their privacy so well respected by their fans. What's Kate Bush doing now? No idea. All I can tell you is that visitors to that house in southwest England are strongly discouraged. Next on our list of the most mysterious alt-rock musicians is Lee Mavers, the head of a wonderful British band called The Laws, a group that released exactly one album containing one hit single before Mavers dropped out of sight. As British indie musicians from the last half century go, Mavers had a reputation of being one of the most eccentric. Let's unpack what we can. Mavers and The Laws came out of Liverpool. Recording that one album was incredibly stressful, compounded by Maver's insane perfectionism and an inability to get down on tape exactly what he heard in his head. One apocryphal story, well, probably apocryphal, says that Maver's somehow located what he called 60s dust, which is just like a sound, dust allegedly from the 1960s, and he sprinkled it on his instruments before he started playing. Bandmates grew paranoid about their ability to play because they could never do what Maver's asked them to do. Eventually, after 12 studio sessions, 
10 band members, seven producers, and over one million pounds in studio costs. He was forced to release the record on October 1st, 1990, even though he still wasn't happy with what had been recorded. In fact, he was quoted as saying, I hate it. There is not one good thing I can find to say about it. It's like a snake with a broken back. And with that, he disappeared. Oh, there were rumors and stories. He'd become a painter. He'd gone into home decor. He'd become a hopeless heroin addict. He was re-recording and re-recording songs from that album in a Sisyphean attempt to get them right. That he was living in a monastery where the resident monks had declared him to be the best thing to happen to music since Mozart. There was even a book called A Secret Liverpool in Search of the Laws. The truth, though, isn't quite like that. Lee has appeared in concert 20 times since 1991. He's rumored to talk to other musicians from time to time. Liam Gallagher is rumored to be a mate. So is Paul Weller. He did dabble in heroin for a while, but recovered from that. And there are unreleased bootleg tracks online if you know where to look. As far as we know, Mavers is living in a Liverpool suburb as a family man, stubbornly unwilling to talk to most every journalist or engage in anything to do with the vile music industry. He is pretty much completely unknowable. So how does he and his family make ends meet? With this one hit wonder hit, which has been licensed and covered over and over again through the last three plus decades, earning him a regular six-figure income year after year. Some call this the perfect pop song and lament that Lee Mavers and the Laws are one of the great lost bands of all time. Next up on our list of alt-rock's most mysterious musicians is the KLF. Now, to be fair, we, we actually know quite a bit about them. It's just that it's really, really hard to figure out what their deal is. The KLF is two guys, Bill Drummond and Jimmy Cotty. They first appeared in 1987 under the name The Justified Ancients of Moo Moo. Drummond used to be the manager of Echo and the Bunnymen in the early days and was the founder of a label called Zoo Records. Cotty was the guitarist in a band called Brilliant, who was also managed by Drummond. In 1986, Drummond declared that he was quitting all the jobs in the music industry because he turned 33 and one-third years old and now needed to do something revolutionary. He started writing books before deciding that hip-hop was the future. He called up Cotty, and the Justified Ancients of Moo Moo, or Jams, was formed in 1987. They immediately started causing problems by using unauthorized samples in their material, including from the Beatles and ABBA, which created all kinds of legal problems, which led them to travel to Sweden to try to negotiate with ABBA. When that didn't work, they burned the remaining offending records in a field and threw the rest overboard into the North Sea as they took the ferry home. Unchastened, they continued to infringe copyrights, the Mission Impossible theme, material from Whitney Houston and others. And after a few more months, the jams were brought to an end. They resurfaced under the name The Time Lords, who released a Doctor Who-themed hit that made the use of the Gary Glitter song Rock and Roll Part 2. And from there, they morphed into the KLF. They engaged in some super weird stuff. During one performance at a rave in 1989, they threw a thousand pounds worth of pound notes at the crowd, with each one featuring the message, Children, we love you. More records followed, largely in the form of 12-inch singles. And in 1991, the KLF was one of the biggest-selling singles acts in the world. 
That gave them license to turn up their game even more. At the 1992 Brit Awards, they planned to dump buckets of blood over the audience and to disembowel a dead sheep on stage. Like I say, we don't know what their deal is. When organizers wouldn't allow that, Drummond said, fine, I'll just cut my hand off with an axe on stage. That didn't happen, thankfully. Instead, Drummond showed up with a machine gun and fired blanks over the head of the audience. The sheep, which had already been purchased, was dumped at an after party. The best artist trophy they won that night was later found buried near Stonehenge. That was their grand retirement from the music industry, and they immediately deleted all their records. But they weren't done. In 1993, Drummond and Cotty formed the K Foundation, which mounted some uh, interesting exhibitions. The most famous happened on August 23, 1994, when they took whatever money they had left, which was about a million pounds, and burned the money in front of the press on the Scottish Isle of Jura. They filmed everything, too. There's more, but let me just leave you with this. Exactly 23 years to the day after they burned all that money, they announced a new plan called the People's Pyramid, using bricks, each containing 23 grams of human ashes. When complete, this pyramid will have a total of 34,592 bricks. If you would like to secure your place in the pyramid, it'll cost you £99 to register. And then, of course, you have to find somebody to send them 23 grams of your ashes after you die. If all that isn't mysterious, it is uh, certainly weird. Here's something from the KLF from when they were selling more singles than just about anyone. I had a copy of this before the KLF deleted everything. There were at least eight samples in this track, including from the MC5, Kraftwerk, The Doors, and NASA's call of the launch of Apollo 16. The KLF with What Time Is Love, a massive single for them in 1990. There's about a million remixes of that, too. Back with more of Alt-Rock's most mysterious performers in just a sec. This program is all about Alt-Rock's most mysterious performers. And the fourth guy on my list is considered because we don't know what happened to him. Richie Edwards of the Manic Street Preachers. His fate is one of the great mysteries of all time, period, full stop. What happened to Richie Edwards on February 1st, 1995? Richie was the most extreme member of the Manic Street Preachers. He was also quite disturbed and prone to depression, anorexia, drug use, and bouts of self-mutilation. He was also morbidly fascinated with the last days of Kurt Cobain. But despite several attempts at therapy and rehab and all kinds of support from his bandmates and friends, it was obvious that Richie was in an unstoppable downward spiral. The final trigger seemed to have been the death of his dog on January 14, 1995. After that, Richie shaved off all his hair and began acting even more strangely than usual, even though he was off alcohol and drugs at that point. On January 31st, he and bandmate James Dean Bradford checked into the London Embassy Hotel on Bayswater Road, which is right across the street from High Park in London. The purpose was to get ready for a promotional trip through North America. At 8.30 that night, James knocked on Richie's door, room 561, and asked if he wanted to go out. Richie politely declined, saying that he was just about to have a bath. He later called his mother to say that he wasn't wild about having to go to America, but at the same time, 
he understood it was something people in rock bands have to do from time to time. And that was the last anyone heard from him. At 7 a.m. on February 1st, 1995, Richie checked out of the hotel and drove his Vauxhall Cavalier to his home in Cardiff, Wales, where he dropped off some stuff, including his bottle of Prozac. And he also left his passport, which he left right on the desk. As for money, well, for the past two weeks, Richie had been withdrawing 200 pounds a day from his bank account, taking out a total of 2,800 pounds. What was he using that money for? No idea. It could have been for the U.S. tour, although he talked about buying a new desk for his home. He'd found it in a shop in Cardiff, but he never bought it. On February 7th, a cab driver allegedly picked him up from a hotel in the Welsh city of Newport and drove him around for a bit. The ride cost 68 pounds, which the passenger paid in cash. Then a fan apparently talked to him about a week later at a bus station in the Welsh city of Newport. He was also allegedly seen at a passport office. Richie's car was found February 14th at the nearby Austin service station by the Severn Bridge, which is supposedly a favorite spot for those seeking suicide. It had gotten a ticket for illegal parking. Three days later, it was reported as abandoned. The battery was dead, suggesting that Richie had been running the radio or the heater for long periods of time without turning the engine on. There was a receipt and 30 pence in change showing that he recently crossed the bridge at 2.55 a.m. on February 1st. But that didn't make any sense, since he reportedly checked out of his London hotel room at 7 that morning, and it looked like someone had been living in the car for at least a couple of nights. But that was it. He was gone. There was no body. There were no clues. And worst of all, no motives. Why did Richie choose to disappear so completely? Since then, there have been Elvis-like sightings of Richie in Goa, India, in the Canary Islands, in London, in Africa. In early 2002, a pair of human feet was discovered downstream from that Severn Bridge, but DNA results proved conclusively that this wasn't Richie, or even part of Richie. Another theory is that he ended up in Phuket, Thailand, and died in the 2004 tsunami. Still, another theory says that he disappeared to Israel. Another theory is that he took after his uncle, who once disappeared for 10 years before showing up again. Richie was apparently fascinated by that story. Is he dead or has he just dropped out? On November 23, 2008, Richie was declared legally dead by his family, having assumed to have taken his own life at that magical and doomed age of, yes, 27. But the bottom line is, nobody knows for sure. This is from the last Manic Street Preachers album to feature Richie. It's the Holy Bible, and this song is Faster. There are few musicians as mysterious or as weird as Jandek, the cult figure and creator of what's known as outsider music from Texas. Jandek is properly mysterious in almost a ghostly sort of way. He'd been releasing super lo-fi, almost unlistenable indie records for years before we learned that his name was Sterling Smith and he was from Houston, Texas. These releases started appearing in 1978 on the Corwood Industries label which only seemed to have a post office box. Keeping track of Jandek is hard. He's released somewhere around 100 albums and DVDs, sometimes up to five a year. None have ever come with any biographical information. Liner notes are almost non-existent. No one knew who this guy was or what he was trying to accomplish or 
how he was financing this operation, although evidence emerged in 1986 that he was some kind of machinist, so maybe he had a day job. Another story. He wrote seven novels, but when all were rejected by publishers, he burned them. The name Jandek came about after he was forced to change the original name of his outfit from The Units to something else after he learned that another group was already using that name. The story is that he came up with the name Jandek when, in the month of January, he was on the phone to someone named Decker. So, Jan and Decker, I guess? When he doesn't go by Jandek, he refers to himself as the representative from Corwood. Some songs feature guest appearances from other musicians, but nothing is known about them either. Only two interviews have ever been published, both of them of the unauthorized variety, and they were done by phone. A few journalists have tracked him down, but they did little to shed much light on him. And there was even a documentary in 2004 called Jandek on Corwood, but he doesn't appear in the film. Then a shocker. In October 2004, he performed live at a small festival in Glasgow. As far as anyone knows, this was the first time Jandek played in public. Several other appearances followed, all with no promotion and, get this, no acknowledgement afterwards that they ever happened. Since then, Jandek has played, on average, a couple of shows per year, each time with different backing musicians. There was a film of a performance in Toronto and then a one-act play featuring Jandek that ran on PBS. Despite all this, Jandek remains reclusive, mysterious, unknowable, and an important cult hero to many. And the music is just plain strange. Here's an example of what he does, which is a combination of Texas blues country music, a little barely electric boogie, some spoken word, and other assorted weirdness. This is called 12 Minutes Since February 22nd. Jandek was weird and mysterious. You don't want to listen to his stuff after dark. You may never fall asleep ever again. Now let's try something a little more conventional. Daft Punk. They're very much like the residents, whom we spoke of earlier, because they never appeared in public without covering their heads. In most cases, Guy Manuel de Homen Cristo and Thomas Van Galter have hidden themselves under elaborate helmets inspired by robots. After performing together in a French guitar band called Darlin, Guy and Thomas got into synthesizer and drum machines. When they performed live in the middle and late 1990s, there were no costumes, just them in a DJ booth. Then they started playing with their image. Sometimes they'd appear with black bags over their heads. Other times they brought out Halloween masks. They started to object to photographs and filming. And if they were to be filmed, they wouldn't speak. The robot helmets first started appearing in 2001 and came with matching gloves. The story that they gave to the press was that at 9.09 a.m. on September 9, 1999, there was an accident involving a sampler in their studio. And when they woke up after what appears to have been an explosion, they realized that they'd been transformed from humans into robots. It's a good story, but just a way to separate their professional lives from their personal ones. I respect that. Each iteration of the helmets became more elaborate. Some had LED effects built in, while others had their own air conditioning units for those really hot gigs. Leather outfits were sometimes added. They brought in capes, too. And even when they appeared on stage to accept their Grammy Awards in 2014, they had someone else do the talking. It's cool. 
and the disguise obviously worked extremely well for them throughout their career. And since their breakup in early 2021, they vanished. Although for all we know, those two guys sitting next to you on the bus could be Daft Punk. Back with more mysterious musicians, which will lead us to two metal bands, Ghost and Slipknot. Hang on. This is a program on some of rock's most mysterious musicians. People who either go to great lengths to hide their identities or do whatever they can to keep us guessing about who they really are. This is where we probably should mention Slipknot. They're not in the same league as Daft Punk or Kiss or The Residents, but there's still something mysterious about them. We know all their names. We've seen them all without their masks. But when viewed from a distance, they've got this unknowable vibe. Each member goes by a number instead of a name. Their stage uniforms consist of jumpsuits, and they've each got face masks that have changed and evolved over the years. So let's concentrate on those. First, Kiss was a big influence on every member of Slipknot. They loved the anonymity the makeup offered them. Another influence was the band Mr. Bungle, the group headed up by Mike Patton of Faith No More. They've been known to use masks and jumpsuits and pseudonyms too. The idea for the masks came from Sean Crane in the early days of the band. This would be around 1996 or so. He thought it was cool to take clown masks to rehearsal, and it wasn't long before his bandmates were calling him the clown. That led to everyone in the group adopting personas that reflected their personalized masks. And by wearing masks, they felt that these disguises gave them license to perform in ways they otherwise wouldn't. It also gave them a chance to maintain privacy and to separate their work and slipknot from their personal lives. That works too, because many of the members are never recognized in public. Another position of the band is that the masks force people to focus more on the music. The masks began as homemade things, but over the years, they became more elaborate and are now made by a special effects dude named Screaming Mad George. There's even an app that Slipknot fans can use to make their own masks. The image and branding has worked extremely well for Slipknot. It's like we know them, but we don't either. There are a bunch of other performers who try to maintain an aura of mystery about them by concealing their identity with masks. There's Buckethead, the guitarist who wears a KFC bucket on his head with a plain, white, expressionless mask. Mushroomhead is a Cleveland band who uses masks and costumes. Insane Clown Posse has their kiss-like makeup. Mudvayne uses a lot of face and body paint and masks and uniforms. And the champions of this have to be Guar with their elaborate characters and alien costumes. All right, who else? Well, there's Burial. For years, this electronic musician from London released music completely anonymously until he was outed by one of the British newspapers. Q Lazarus is a musician who has contributed music to many different movies, including the films of Jonathan Demme. She pretty much disappeared in 1996 and didn't collect royalties for years. That's how far gone she was. Last anyone heard, she had been tracked down driving a bus on Staten Island. And we have to give props to Space. This was a French band for the 1970s who had a thing for wearing astronaut helmets and suits on stage to hide who they were. The guys in Daft Punk were fans. What a surprise. 
But let's finish up with Ghost. There are a number of bands with that name, but in this case, I mean the Swedish metal group who were once referred to as Ghost BC in the U.S. to keep them from getting confused with someone else. Papa Emeritus is up front, while all the nameless ghouls appear in pretty much identical costumes and face masks. In fact, the lineup is listed as Papa Emeritus 4 and a group of nameless ghouls, one of whom may or may not have temporarily included Dave Grohl. Papa Emeritus' character has gone through five iterations so far, each looking like some demonic version of a pope or a cardinal that worships Satan instead of anything resembling Christian deities. There are special symbols, investments, references to alchemy and the ancient elements of fire, water, wind, and earth. Oh, and ether, too, for some reason. With the exception of a couple of slips and revelations, everybody is completely anonymous. And while they will do autograph sessions, they don't sign their names. They each have a stamp with their respective alchemic symbol. All songs are credited to a ghoul writer. There was once a lawsuit against Papa Emeritus by some of the ghouls, which resulted in a few names being made public. This is how we know that Papa Emeritus is actually a guy named Tobias Forge. Ghost has a massive worldwide fan base and four Grammy Awards to their name. And while they don't get on the radio too much, they've become a giant concert draw. I mean, Who doesn't love this kind of mystery? Let's hear some Ghost. This is Dance Macabre from the 2018 album Prequel. For a band with such a sinister image, this is actually pretty accessible. The internet and social media haven't taken all the mystery out of music. There are still performers who manage to conceal their identities, like uh, Banksy, the famous graffiti artist whose works sell for millions of dollars. Nobody knows who Banksy is, although some suspect that he might be 3D, otherwise known as Robert and Nadja in the group Massive Attack. Or maybe Banksy is actually Jamie Hewitt, the guy who works with Damon Albarn in Gorillaz. Or it might be a guy named Robin Gunningham, an artist from Bristol who started calling himself Robin Banks, which may have eventually become Banksy. Yes, it's cool to know everything about your favorite artist, but at the same time, isn't it cool to leave some things to the imagination? Podcasts for these programs can be found on all the platforms. There are hundreds to binge on. Just download and go. You can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And I invite you to check out my website, ejournalofmusicalthings.com, which is updated daily with music news and information. And here's my email address, alan at alancross.ca. I will respond. Technical productions by the mysterious Rob Johnston. Strange, no one has ever seen what he looks like. Hmm. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 